Well, hello and welcome to The Mariner with me, Chris Stamwell Major. And this episode, we're going back to reading Joshua Slocum Sailing Alone Around the World. We're on chapter 7. On January the 26th, 1896, the spray, being refitted and well-provisioned in every way, sailed from Buenos Aires. There was little wind at the start. The surface of the great river was like a silver disc, and I was glad of a tow from a harbour tug to clear the port entrance. But a gale came up soon after and caused an ugly sea, and instead of being all silver as before, the river was now all mud. The plate is a treacherous place for storms. One sailing there should always be on the alert for squalls. I cast anchor before dark in the best lee I could find near the land, but was tossed miserably all night, heart sore of choppy seas. On the following morning, I got the sloop underway and with reefed sails worked her down the river against a headwind. Standing in that night to the place where Pilot Howard joined me for the upriver sail, I took a departure, shaping my course to clear Point Indio on the one hand and the English bank on the other. I had not for many years been south of these regions. I will not say that I expected all fine sailing on the course for Cape Horn direct, but while I worked at the sails and rigging, I thought only of onward and forward. It was when I was anchored in the lonely places that a feeling of awe crept over me. At the last anchorage on the monotonous and muddy river, weak as it may seem, I gave way to my feelings. I resolved then that I would anchor no more north of the Strait of Magellan. On the 28th of January, the spray was clear of Point Indio, English Bank and all the other dangers of the river plate. With a fair wind, she then bore away for the Strait of Magellan, under all sail, pressing farther and farther toward the wonderland of the south, till I forgot the blessings of our milder north. My ship passed in safety Bahia Blanca, also the Gulf of St. Matthias and the mighty Gulf of St. George, hoping that she might go clear of the destructive tide races, the dread of big craft or little along this coast. I gave all the capes a berth of about 50 miles, for these dangers extend many miles from the land. But where the sloop avoided one danger, she encountered another. For one day, well off the Patagonian coast, while the sloop was reaching under short sail, a tremendous wave, the culmination it seemed of many waves, rolled down upon her in a storm, roaring as it came. I had only a moment to get all sail down and myself up to the peak halyards, out of danger, when I saw the mighty crest towering masthead high above me. The mountain of water submerged my vessel. She shook in every timber and reeled under the weight of the sea, but rose quickly out of it and rode grandly over the rollers that followed. It may have been a minute that my hold in the rigging, I could see no part of the spray's hull. Perhaps it was even less time than that, but it seemed a long while, for under great excitement one lives fast, and in a few seconds one may think a great deal of one's life past. Not only did the past with electric speed flash before me, but I had time while in my hazardous position for resolutions for the future that would take a long time to fulfill. The first one was, I remember, that if the spray came through this danger, I would dedicate my best energies to building a larger ship on her lines, which I hope yet to do. Other promises, less easily kept, I should have made under protest. However, the incident which filled me with fear was only one more test of the spray's seaworthiness. It reassured me against rude Cape Horn. From the time the great wave swept over the spray until she reached Cape Virgins, nothing occurred to move a pulse and set blood in motion. On the contrary, 
the weather became fine and the sea smooth and life tranquil. The phenomenon of mirage frequently occurred. An albatross sitting on the water one day loomed up like a large ship. Two fur seals asleep on the surface of the sea appeared like great whales and a bank of haze I could have sworn was high land. The kaleidoscope then changed and on the following day I sailed in a world peopled by dwarves. On February 11th, the spray rounded Cape Virgins and entered the Strait of Magellan. The scene was again real and gloomy. The wind, northeast and blowing a gale, sent feather-white spume along the coast. Such a sea ran as would swamp an ill-appointed ship. As a sloop neared the entrance to the strait, I observed the two great tide races made ahead, one very close to the point of the land and one farther offshore. Between the two, in a sort of channel through comas, went the spray with the close-reefed sails but a rolling sea followed her a long way in, and a fierce current swept along the cape against her. But this she stemmed, and was soon chirruping under the lee of Cape Virgins and running every minute into smoother water. However, long trailing kelp from sunken rocks waved forebodingly under her keel, and the wreck of a great steamship smashed on the beach abreast gave a gloomy aspect to the scene. I was not to be let off easy. The virgins would collect tribute even from the spray passing their promontory. Fitful rain squalls from the northwest followed the northeast gale. I reefed sloop sails and sitting in the cabin to rest my eyes, I was so strongly impressed with what in all nature I might expect that as I dozed the very air I breathed seemed to warn me of danger. My senses heard, spray ahoy, shouted in warning. I sprang to the deck wondering who could be there that knew the spray so well as to call out her name passing in the dark, for it was now the blackest of nights all around except away in the southwest where the old familiar white arch, the terror of Cape Horn, rapidly pushed up a southwest gale. I had only a moment to douse sail and lash all solid when it struck like a shot from a cannon, and for the first half hour it was something to be remembered by way of a gale. For thirty hours it kept on blowing hard, the sloop could carry no more than a three-reefed mainsail and four staysail. With these, she held on stoutly and was not blown out of the strait. In the height of the squalls and this gale, she doused all sail, and this occurred often enough. After this gale followed only a smart breeze, and the spray, passing through the narrows without mishap, cast anchor at Sandy Point on February the 14th, 1896. Sandy Point... Punta Arenas, is a Chilean coaling station and boasts about 2,000 inhabitants of mixed nationality, but mostly Chileans. What with sheep farming, gold mining and hunting, the settlers in this dreary land seem not the worst off in the world. But the natives, Patagonian and Fusion, on the other hand, were as squalid as contact with unscrupulous traders could make them. A large percentage of the business there was traffic in fire water. If there was a law against selling the poisonous stuff to the natives, it was not enforced. Fine specimens of the Patagonian race, looking smart in the morning when they came into town, had repented before night of ever having seen a white man, so beastly drunk were they, to say nothing about the peltry of which they had been robbed. The port at that time was free, but a custom house was in course of construction, and when it is finished, port and tariff dues are to be collected. A soldier police guarded the place and a sort of vigilante force besides took down its guns now and then. But as a general thing, to my mind, whenever an execution was made, they killed the wrong man. 
Just previous to my arrival, the governor, himself of a jovial turn of mind, had sent a party of young bloods to foray a fusion settlement and wipe out what they could of it on account of the recent massacre of a schooner's crew somewhere else. Although the place was quite newsy and supported two papers, dailies, I think, the port captain, a Chilean naval officer, advised me to ship hands to fight Indians in the strait farther west and spoke of my stopping until a gunboat should be going through which would give me a tow. After canvassing the place, however, I found only one man willing to embark, and he on condition that I should ship another Mon and a Dug. But as no one else was willing to come along, and as I drew the line at dogs, I said no more about the matter, but simply loaded my guns. At this point in my dilemma, Captain Pedro Samblech, a good Austrian of large experience coming along, gave me a bag of carpet tacks worth more than all the fighting men and dogs of Tierra del Fuego. I protested that I had no use for carpet tacks on board. Samblech smiled as my want of experience and maintained stoutly that I would have use for them. You must use them with discretion, he said. That is to say, don't step on them yourself. With this remote hint about the use of the tax, I got on all right and saw the way to maintaining clear decks at night without the care of watching. Sambalich was greatly interested in my voyage and after giving me the tax, he put on board bags of biscuits and a large quantity of smoked venison. He declared that my bread, which was ordinary sea biscuits and easily broken, was not nutritious as his, which was so hard that I could break it only with a stout blow from a maul. Then he gave me from his own sloop a compass which was certainly better than mine, and offered to unbend her mainsail for me if I would accept it. Last of all, this large-hearted man brought out a bottle of fusion gold dust from a place where it had been cached and begged me to help myself from it, for use farther along on the voyage. But I felt sure of success without this draft of a friend, and I was right. Samblich's tax, as it turned out, were of more value than gold. The port captain, finding that I had resolved to go, even alone, since there was no help for it, set up no further objections, but advised me, in case the savages tried to surround me with their canoes, to shoot straight and begin to do it in time, but to avoid killing them if possible, which I heartily agreed to. With these simple injunctions, the officer gave me my port clearance free of charge, and I sailed on the same day, February the 19th, 1896. It was not without thoughts of strange and stirring adventure beyond all I had yet encountered that I now sailed into the country and very core of the savage fusions. A fair wind from Sandy Point brought me on the first day to St. Nicholas Bay, where, so I was told, I might expect to meet savages. But seeing no signs of life, I came to anchor in eight fathoms of water, where I lay all night under a high mountain. Here I had my first experience with the terrific squalls called Willy Wars, which extended from this point on through the Strait to the Pacific. They were compressed gales of wind that Boreas handed down over the hills in chunks. A full-blown Willy War will throw a ship, even without sail on, over on her beam ends, but like other gales, they cease now and then, if only for a short time. February 20th was my birthday, and I found myself alone, with hardly so much as a bird in sight, off Cape Froward, the southernmost point of the continent of America. By daylight in the morning, I was getting my ship underway for the bout ahead. The sloop held the wind fair while she ran 30 miles further on her course, which brought her to Fortescue Bay, and at once among the natives signal fires, which blazed up now on all sides. 
clouds flew over the mountain from the west all day. At night, my good east wind failed, and instead a gale from the west soon came on. I gained anchorage at twelve o'clock that night, under the lee of a little island, and then prepared myself a cup of coffee, of which I was sorely in need, for, to tell the truth, hard beating in the heavy squalls and against the current had told on my strength. Finding that the anchor held, I drank my beverage and named the place Coffee Island. It lies to the south of Charles Island, with only a narrow channel between. By daylight the next morning the spray was again under way, beating hard, but she came to in a cove in Charles Island, two and a half miles along on her course. Here she remained undisturbed two days, with both anchors down in a bed of kelp. Indeed, she might have remained undisturbed indefinitely, had not the wind moderated. For during these two days it blew so hard that no boat could venture out on the strait, and the natives being away to other hunting grounds, the island and anchorage was safe. But at the end of the fierce windstorm, fair weather came. Then I got my anchors and again sailed out upon the strait. Canoes, manned by savages from Fortescue, now came in pursuit. The wind falling light, they gained on me rapidly, till, coming within hail, when they ceased paddling and a bow-legged savage stood up and called to me, Yamaskuna, Yamaskuna, which is their begging term. I said, no. Now, I was not for letting on that I was alone, and so I stepped into the cabin and, passing through the hold, came out at the forescuttle, changing my clothes as I went along. That made two men. Then the piece of bowsprit which I had sawed off on Buenos Aires, which I had still on board, I ranged forward on the lookout, dressed as a seaman, attaching a line by which I could pull it into motion. That made three of us, and but we didn't want to yam a schooner, but for all that the savages came on faster than before. I saw that besides four at the paddles in the canoe nearest to me, there were others in the bottom, and that they were shifting hands often. At eighty yards I fired a shot across the bows of the nearest canoe, at which they all stopped but only for a moment. Seeing that they persisted in coming nearer, I fired the second shot, so close to the chap who wanted to yam a schooner that he changed his mind quickly enough and bellowed with fear. Bueno, yo via isla! And sitting down in his canoe, he rubbed his starboard cat head for some time. I was thinking of the good port captain's advice when I pulled the trigger and must have aimed pretty straight. However, a miss was as good as a mile for Mr. Black Pedro as he was and no other a leader in several bloody massacres. He made for the island now, and the others followed him. I knew by his Spanish lingo, and by his full beard, that he was the villain I have named, and a renegade mongrel, and the worst murderer in Tierra del Fuego. The authorities had been in search of him for two years. The fusions are not bearded. So much for the first day among the savages. I came to anchor at midnight in Three Island Cove, about twenty miles along from Fortescue Bay. I saw on the opposite side of the strait signal fires and heard the barking of dogs, but where I lay it was quite deserted by natives. I have always taken it as a sign that where I found birds sitting about or seals on the rocks, I should not find savage Indians. Seals are never plentiful in these waters, but in Three Island Cove I saw one on the rocks and other signs of the absence of savage men. On the next day the wind was again blowing a gale, and although she was in the lee of the land, the sloop dragged her anchors, so that I had to get her under way and beat farther into the cove where I came in a landlocked pool. At another time or place this would have been a rash thing to do, and it was safe now only from the fact that the gale which drove me to shelter would keep the Indians from crossing the strait. 
Seeing this was the case, I went ashore with gun and axe on an island where I could not in any event be surprised, and there felled trees and split about a cord of firewood which loaded my small boat several times. While I carried the wood, though I was morally sure there were no savages near, I never once went to or from the skiff without my gun. While I had that and a clear field of over eighty yards about me, I felt safe. The trees on the island, very scattering, were a sort of beech and a stunted cedar, both of which made good fuel. Even the green limbs of the beech, which seemed to possess a resinous quality, burned readily in my great drum stove. I have described my method of wooding up in detail that the reader who has kindly borne with me so far may see that in this, as in all other particulars of my voyage, I took great care against all kinds of surprises, whether by animals or by the elements. In the Strait of Magellan, the greatest vigilance was necessary. In this instance, I reasoned that I had all about me the greatest danger of the whole voyage, the treachery of cunning savages, for which I must be particularly on the alert. The spray sailed from Three Island Cove in the morning after the gale went down, but was glad to return for shelter from another sudden gale. Sailing again on the following day, she fetched Borgia Bay, a few miles on her course, where vessels had anchored from time to time and had nailed boards on the trees ashore with name and date of harbouring, carved or painted. Nothing else I could see to indicate that civilised man had ever been there. I had taken a survey of the gloomy place with my spyglass and was getting my boat out to land and take notes when the Chilean gunboat Hummel came in and officers coming on board advised me to leave the place at once, a thing that required little eloquence to persuade me to do. I accepted the captain's kind offer of a tow to the next anchorage at the place called Notch Cove, eight miles further along, where I should be clear of the worst of the fusions. We made anchorage at the cove about dark that night, while the wind came down in fierce willy wars from the mountains. An instance of Magellan weather was afforded when the Hummel, a well-appointed gunboat of great power, after attempting on the following day to proceed on her voyage, was obliged by sheer force of the wind to return and take up anchorage again and remain till the gale abated, and lucky she was to get back. Meeting this vessel was a little godsend. She was commanded and officered by high-class sailors and educated gentlemen. An entertainment that was gotten up on her impromptu at the notch would be hard to beat anywhere. One of her midshipmen sang popular songs in French, German and Spanish, and one, so said he, in Russian. If the audience did not know the lingo of one song from another, it was no drawback to the merriment. I was left alone the next day, for then the Hummel put out on her voyage, the gale having abated. I spent a day taking in wood and water. By the end of that time, the weather was fine. Then I sailed from that desolate place. There is little more to be said concerning the spray's first passage through the strait that would differ from what I have already recorded. She anchored and weighed many times and beat many days against the current, with now and then a slant for a few miles till finally she gained anchorage and shelter for the night at Port Tamar, with Cape Pillar in sight to the west. Here I felt the throb of the great ocean that lay before me. I knew now that I had put a world behind me and that I was opening out another world ahead. I had passed the haunts of savages. Great piles of granite mountains of bleak and lifeless aspect were now astern. On some of them not even a speck of moss had ever grown. 
there was an unfinished newness all about the land. On the hill back of Port Tamar, a small beacon had been thrown up, showing that some man had been there. But how could one tell but that he had died of loneliness and grief? In a bleak land is not the place to enjoy solitude. Throughout the whole of the strait west of Cape Forward, I saw no animals except dogs owned by savages. These I saw often enough and heard them yelping night and day. Birds were not plentiful. The scream of a wild fowl, which I took for a loon, sometimes startled me with its piercing cry. The steamboat duck, so called because it propels itself over the sea with its wings and resembles a miniature sidewheel steamer in its motion, was sometimes seen scurrying on out of danger. It never flies, but hitting the water instead of the air with its wings, it moves faster than a rowboat or a canoe. The few fur seals I saw were very shy, and of fishes I saw next to none at all. I did not catch one. Indeed, I seldom or never put a hook over during the whole voyage. Here in the strait, though, I found great abundance of mussels and excellent quality. I fared sumptuously on them. There was a sort of swan, smaller than a muscovy duck, which might have been brought down with the gun. But in the loneliness of life about the dreary country, I found myself in no mood to take one life less, except in self-defence. Chapter 8 It was the 3rd of March when the spray sailed from Port Tamar direct for Cape Pillar, with the wind from the northeast, which I fervently hoped might hold till she cleared the land. But there was no such good luck in store. It soon began to rain and thicken in the northwest, boding no good. The spray neared Cape Pillar rapidly, and nothing loath plunged into the Pacific Ocean at once, taking her first bath of it in the gathering storm. There was no turning back, even had I wished to do so, for the land was now shut out by the darkness of night. The wind freshened, and I took in a third reef. The sea was confused and treacherous. In such a time as this, the old fisherman prayed, Remember, Lord, my ship is small, and thy sea is so wide. I saw now only the gleaming crests of the waves. They showed white teeth with the sloop balancing over them. Everything for an offering, I cried, and to this end I carried on all the sails she would bear. She ran all night with a free sheet, but on the morning of March 4th, the wind shifted to southwest, then back suddenly to northwest and blew with terrible force. The spray, stripped of her sails, then bore off under bare poles. No ship in the world could have stood up against so violent a gale. Knowing that this storm might continue for many days, and that it would be impossible to work back to the westward along the coast of Tierra del Fuego, there seemed nothing to do but to keep on and go east about, after all. Anyhow, for my present safety, the only course lay in keeping her before the wind, and so she drove southeast, as though about to round the horn, while the waves rose and fell and bellowed their never-ending story of the sea. But the hand that held these held also the spray, she was running now with a reef for staysail, the sheets flat amidship. I paid out two long ropes to steady her course and to break combing seas astern, and I lashed the helm amidship. In this trim, she ran before it, shipping never a sea. Even while the storm raged at its worst, my ship was wholesome and noble. My mind as to her seaworthiness was put at ease for I. When all had been done that I could do for the safety of the vessel, 
I got to the fore scuttle between seas and prepared a pot of coffee over a wood fire and made a good Irish stew. Then, as before and afterward on the spray, I insisted on warm meals. In the tide race off Cape Pillar, however, where the sea was marvellously high, uneven and crooked, my appetite was slim, and for a time I postponed cooking. Confidentially, I was seasick. The first day of the storm gave the spray her actual test in the worst sea that Cape Horn or its wild regions could afford, and in no part of the world could a rougher sea be found than at this particular point, namely off Cape Pillar, the grim sentinel of the Horn. Farther offshore, while the sea was majestic, there was less apprehension of danger. There, the spray rode, now like a bird on the crest of a wave, and now like a waif deep down in the hollow between seas, and so she drove on. Whole days passed, counted as other days, but with always a thrill, yes, of delight. On the fourth day of the gale, rapidly nearing the pitch of Cape Horn, I inspected my chart and pricked off the course and distance to Port Stanley in the Falkland Islands, where I might find my way and refit, when I saw, through a rift in the clouds, a high mountain about seven leagues away on the port beam. The fierce edge of the gale by this time had blown off, and I had already bent a square sail on the boom in place of the mainsail, which was torn to rags. I hauled in the trailing ropes, hoisted this awkward sail reefed, the fore staysail being already set, and under this sail brought her at once on the wind heading for the land, which appeared as an island in the sea. So it turned out to be, though not the one I had supposed. I was exultant over the prospect of once more entering the Strait of Magellan and beating through again into the Pacific, for it was more than rough on the outside coast of Tierra del Fuego. It was indeed a mountainous sea. When the sloop was in the fiercest squalls with only the reef force staysail set, even that small sail shook her from keelson to truck when it shivered by the leech. Had I harboured the shadow of a doubt for her safety, it would have been that she might spring a leak in the garboard at the heel of the mast, but she never called me once to the pump. Under pressure of the smallest sail I could set, she made for the land like a racehorse, and steering her over the crests of the waves so that she might not trip was nice work. I stood at the helm now and made the most of it. Night closed in before the sloop reached the land, leaving her feeling the way in pitchy darkness. I saw breakers ahead before long. At this I wore ship and stood offshore, but was immediately startled by the tremendous roaring of breakers again ahead on the lee bow. This puzzled me, for there should have been no broken water where I supposed myself to be. I kept off a good bit, then wore round, but finding broken water also there, threw her head again offshore. In this way, among dangers, I spent the rest of the night. Hail and sleet in the fierce squalls cut my flesh till the blood trickled over my face. But what of that? It was daylight, and the sloop was in the midst of the Milky Way of the sea, which is the northwest of Cape Horn, and it was the white breakers of a huge sea over sunken rocks which had threatened to engulf her through the night. It was Fury Island I had sighted and steered for. What a panorama was before me now and all around. It was not the time to complain of a broken skin. What could I do but fill away among the breakers and find a channel between them now that it was day? Since she had escaped the rocks through the night, surely she would find her way by daylight. This was the greatest sea adventure of my life. God knows how my vessel escaped.
The sloop at last reached inside of small islands that sheltered her in smooth water. Then I climbed the mast to survey the wild scene astern. The great naturalist Darwin looked over this seascape from the depot of the Beagle and wrote in his journal, any landsman seeing the Milky Way would have nightmare for a week. He might have added, or seamen as well. The sprays, good luck, followed fast. I discovered, as she sailed along through a labyrinth of islands, that she was in the Cockburn Channel, which leads into the Strait of Magellan at a point opposite Cape Froward, and that she was already passing Thieves' Bay, suggestively named. And at night, March 8th, behold, she was at anchor in a snug cove at the turn. Every heartbeat of the spray now counted thanks. Here I pondered on the events of the last few days and strangely enough, instead of feeling rested from sitting or lying down, I now began to feel jaded and worn, but a hot meal of venison stew soon put me right so that I could sleep. As drowsiness came on, I sprinkled the deck with tacks and then I turned in, bearing in mind the advice of my old friend Sambalich that I was not to step on them myself. I saw to it that not a few of them stood business end up for when the spray passed Thieves' Bay, two canoes had put out and followed in her wake, and there was no disguising the fact any longer that I was alone. Now, it is well known that one cannot step on attack without saying something about it. A pretty good Christian will whistle when he steps on the commercial end of a carpet tack, a savage will howl and claw the air, and that was just what happened that night about 12 o'clock. While I was asleep in the cabin, where the savages thought they had me, sloop and all, but changed their minds when they stepped on deck, for then they thought that I or somebody else had them. I had no need of a dog. They howled like a pack of hounds. I had hardly use for a gun. They jumped pell-mell, some of them into their canoes and some into the sea, to cool off, I suppose, and there was a deal of free language over it as they went. I fired several guns when I came on deck to let the rascals know that I was home, and then I turned in again, feeling sure I should not be disturbed any more by people who left in so great a hurry. The fusions, being cruel, are naturally cowards. They regard a rifle with superstitious fear. The only real danger one might see that might come from their quarter would be from allowing them to surround one with bowshot or to anchor within range where they might lie in ambush. As for their coming on deck at night, even had I not put my tacks about, I could have cleared them off by shots from the cabin and hold. I always kept a quantity of ammunition within reach in the hold and in the cabin and in the forepeak so that retreating to any of these places I could hold the fort simply by shooting up through the deck. Perhaps the greatest danger to be apprehended was from the use of fire. Every canoe carries fire. Nothing is thought of that for it is their custom to communicate by smoke signals. The harmless brand that lies smouldering in the bottom of one of their canoes might be ablaze in one's cabin if he were not on the alert. The port captain of Sandy Point warned me particularly of this danger. Only a short time before they had fired a Chilean gunboat by throwing brands in through the stern windows of the cabin. The spray had no openings in the cabin or deck except two scuttles and these were guarded by fastenings which could not be undone without waking me if I were asleep. On the morning of the 9th, after a refreshing rest and a warm breakfast, and after I had swept the decks of tacks, I got out what spare canvas there was on board and began to sew the pieces together in the shape of a peak for my square mainsail in the tarpaulin. The day, to all appearances, promised fine weather and light winds, 
but appearances in Tierra del Fuego do not always count. While I was wondering why no trees grow on the slope abreast of the anchorage, half-minded to lay by the sail-making and land with my gun for some game and to inspect a white boulder on the beach near the brook, a willy-war came down with such terrific force as to carry the spray with two anchors down like a feather out of the cove and away into deep water. No wonder trees did not grow on the side of that hill. Great Boreas! A tree would need to be all roots to hang on against such a furious wind. From the cove to the nearest land to leeward was a long drift, however, and I had ample time to weigh both anchors before the sloop came near any danger, and so no harm came of it. I saw no more savages that day or the next. They probably had some sign by which they knew of the coming willy wars, at least they might wise in, not being afloat even on the second day, for I had no sooner gotten to work at sailmaking again after the anchor was down than the wind, as on the day before, picked the sloop up and flung her seaward with a vengeance, anchor and all, as before. This fierce wind, usual to the Magellan country, continued on through the day and swept the sloop by several miles of steep bluffs and precipices overhanging a bold shore of wild and uninviting appearance. I was not sorry to get away from it, though. In doing so, it was no Elysian shore to which I shaped my course. I kept on sailing, in hope, since I had no choice but to go on, heading across for St. Nicholas Bay, where I had cast anchor February 19th. It was now the 10th of March. Upon reaching the bay the second time, I had circumnavigated the wildest part of desolate Tierra del Fuego. But the spray had not arrived at St. Nicholas, and by the merest accident her bones were saved from resting there when she did arrive. The parting of a staysail sheet in a willy war when the sea was turbulent and she was plunging into the storm brought me forward to see instantly a dark cliff ahead and breakers so close under the bows that I felt surely lost, and in my thoughts cried, Is the hand of fate against me after all, leading me, in the end, to this dark spot? I sprang aft again, unheeding the flapping sail and threw the wheel over, expecting, as the sloop came down into the hollow of a wave, to feel her timbers smash under me on the rocks. But, at the touch of her helm, she swung clear of the danger, and in the next moment she was in the lee of the land. It was the small island in the middle of the bay for which the sloop had been steering, and which she made with such unerring aim as to nearly run it down. Farther along in the bay was the anchorage, which I managed to reach, but before I could get the anchor down, another squall caught the sloop and whirled her round like a top and carried her away altogether to leeward of the bay. Still farther to leeward was a great headland, and I bore off for that. This was retracing my course towards Sandy Point, for the gale was from the southwest. I had the sloop soon under good control, however, and in a short time rounded to under the lee of a mountain, where the sea was as smooth as a mill pond, and the sails flapped and hung limp while she carried her way close in. Here I thought I would anchor and rest till morning the depth being eight fathoms very close to the shore. But it was interesting to see, as I let go the anchor, that it did not reach the bottom before another willy-war struck down from this mountain and carried the sloop off faster than I could pay out the cable. Instead of resting, I had to man the windlass and heave up the anchor and 50 fathoms of cable hanging up and down in deep water. This was in that part of the strait called Famine Reach. I could have wished it Jericho.
On that little crab windlass, I worked the rest of the night thinking how much easier it was for me when I could say, do that thing or the other thing than to do it myself. But I hove away on the windlass and sang the old chants that I sang when I was a sailor from blow boys blow for California I O to sweet by and by. It was daybreak when the anchor was at the hawse. By this time, the wind had gone down and the cat's paws took the place of Willie Wars. The sloop was then drifting slowly towards Sandy Point. She came within sight of ships at anchor in the roads and I was more than half-minded to put in for new sails. But the wind coming out from the northeast, which was fair for the other direction, I turned the prow of the spray westward once more for the Pacific to traverse a second time the second half of my first course through the strait. That's the end of chapter eight. If you want to listen to more of the book, go on to the next podcast. If you want to hear my commentary, then hang around. Well, welcome back. Here we are again, talking about uh, a book which has really become uh, even more of a favorite for me since I've had the opportunity to go through it in the way that this reading allows. Uh, I think like everybody, obviously I read books, I enjoy books, I read a lot of books, but I never really go through it word by word like I did when I was at school studying English or at university studying linguistics. I have not had to really look at the details of a book like this in a long time. And it's exciting because from that investigation, that deeper investigation, I'm getting a much greater understanding of who Slocum was and the scale of the challenge that he was involved in. And there's this connection that starts to come through in Slocum's writing because he really is an incredibly gifted writer. As we've said before, I'm not sure exactly if he was uh, in, working with a ghostwriter, but he'd already written a couple of decent books before he uh, wrote this one, before he set off on this voyage. And he was setting off on this voyage, as we've previously learned, very much with the intention of making money from it. So he knew he could write. He knew that he was going to make money from the writing of this voyage. And wow, he does a great job of it. So out from Buenos Aires uh, goes he and the spray. And uh, before they've got very far at all, they are struck by this enormous wave. And it's an opportunity to talk a little bit about rogue waves. Rogue waves were something which sailors talked about for hundreds, if not thousands of years before. It's like fishermen and big fish. You know, how big were the waves? Oh, the waves. The waves, waves that were 10 foot become 20 foot. Waves that were 20 foot become 100 foot. And 100 foot waves, you know, went all the way up to heaven. So the feeling amongst sailors for, you know, a long period of time, written period of time, was that king waves, rogue waves, whatever you want to call them, were a pretty regular part of being at sea and that they could get up to 100 feet high. This was poo-pooed by science for the longest time until the 1960s and 70s. We started to get a lot more oil rigs and gas rigs being put into positions um, I know certainly from having come from the UK, they went out into the North Sea, they went out into Morecambe Bay. Um, they were all over the place suddenly, and these rigs were attached to the bottom of the ocean. So unsurprisingly, uh, knowing the height of the waves that were hitting these installations became pretty important because they wanted to know 
uh, <laughs> how, how bad can this get? So it was within the first couple of years of recording wave heights using uh, laser leveling and laser height sensing equipment that they started to realize that where they had referred to 100 foot waves previously as a 100 year wave, that statistically it was possible that somewhere in the world every 100 years trains of waves would add together into such a combination that you could potentially get a king wave that was 100 feet high. After doing a couple of years of uh, data collection on these uh, fixed oil rigs and gas rigs, they started to realize that the instance of a 100-foot waves, a 30-meter wave, could be as much as one a year in the installation fields that they were setting up. <laughs> so certainly it wasn't a case of somewhere in the world, every 100 years, there may be a 100-foot wave. It's like, well, in quite a lot of areas of the world, <laughs> there's a big wave, a very big wave every year. So how do they build up? Obviously, as waves uh, are moving around the world, they're created initially by wind blowing across the surface of the ocean. And that area of ocean, which is uh, open and available for the wind to act upon, we call that area the fetch. So a bigger fetch means more time for waves to build up. So if I blow across my coffee cup here, I actually have you know props ready to go. If I blow across this coffee cup, the fetch is only obviously about three inches. So the waves that I'm able to produce are relatively small. And I've not got much puff in me, so we're not going to get anything too, uh, too, too monstrous inside my cup. But if my cup was many hundreds of miles across and I had a, a decent set of pipes on me, then I would be able to blow in such a fashion that waves would start to build up and we'd start to create these banks of uh, pressure waves inside the water, which in deep water are not manifested uh, very much at the surface at all. When we talk about a wave, we're talking about energy which is built up in the wave, which is passing through the molecules of water. Waves don't go from place to place. It's not a body of water which is in motion, which is a wave. The wave is created by a cyclic uh, bank of, uh, of, of energized uh, particles, I guess. It's energy is transferring from molecule to molecule, from droplet of water to droplet of water, if that's how you want to see it. But the energy is passing through the ocean and the molecules of water are only moving up and down in a very local way. So in deep water, even when we think of like the tsunamis that hit Asia early on in this century, those tsunamis experienced at sea were nothing more than a uh, noticeable but only one meter high wave. The energy was deep below the ocean in the, uh, in, in the depth of water allowed. What we see when we get to the beach and we get to shoal areas is that these banks of, uh, of, of energized particles, this energy that's moving through the water, suddenly it doesn't have the depth to, uh, to, to pass through the water unnoticed at the surface. As we get to the beach, suddenly the bottom starts to get a lot shoaler, the energy starts getting pushed up, and then the surface of the water is uh, affected to a much greater de degree by the energy that's passing through it. And then we get large towering waves. You think of like Hawaii and those huge waves that people surf. That is oceanic swell, which has been created by the thousands of miles of fetch, which is possible in the Pacific Ocean. The wind is blowing, blowing, blowing all the time. And then when that energy reaches the islands of Hawaii, suddenly it all gets a lot shallower. The wave gets pushed up towards the surface and indeed gets pushed up to a point where it's creating breaking 
towering, huge uh, waves for these uh, uh, incredible souls to go out and, and surf. So, so what Slocum is experiencing uh, off the Patagonian coast is a large body of energy which has been pushed close up to the surface of the water. That's the, the most basic form of wave. Now, often at sea, people will say that wave trains move in sets of three. And it has been my observation that I'm not sure exactly why it is. Maybe brains finer than mine can explain why they would move in threes. But there's a feeling always that the, the trains come in threes. Um, and you can see that when you're at the beach, you just get like a big wave and then another one and then another one. And then it's kind of done. When these wave trains are moving across the surface of the ocean, they are moving at the speed which has been imparted to them by the nature of their creation, what uh, speed the wind was, what angle the wind was, any obstacles they've been around already, the depth of the water. So the wave trains individually are moving at different rates. And over time, they can start to catch up with each other. Uh, they can start to uh, multiply peaks, multiply troughs. The uh, center points can overlap, all sorts of strange things. If you think of sine waves, because a wave is a sine wave moving through the ocean, how they may overlap on top of each other. Sometimes a peak and a trough will get into um, a phase with each other and then almost cancel it out. Now you've got a flat spot. Uh, you may end up with uh, two peaks coming together and then you've got a much bigger wave. You can end up with two troughs coming together and you've got like a bit of a hole in the ocean. And we see this all the time at sea where wave trains are adding together even when they're moving in one direction. If we then add to that the fact that the ocean has got wind blowing at different angles in different places. Now, in the local area, all the wind is blowing one direction, but a couple of hundred miles apart, a couple of thousand miles apart, wave actions could be uh, at 90 degrees to each other, even at 180 degrees to each other. So then we have this energy colliding and everything gets super mixed up and messed up. Then we have the effect of uh, islands. So when a wave, if you imagine a straight wave coming left to right and it hits an island, uh, it's going to then bend and break and be shaped by the island. What we find behind islands is a wave patternation called klaptiotic waves, like literally hands clapping. The island creates a friction point. The waves that are experiencing the island and the, the shallowness of the island and the surrounding reef, the surrounding seabed, they will be slowed somewhat. The waves which are still going on in deep water will be at the fastest. So you'll see this kind of uh, V-shape. Imagine like a, a, I don't know, like a bullet or something passing through some kind of medium where we can see the trail behind it. Have like a, a wake coming off the bow of it, like a, like a boat. That's a better way. Don't worry about bullets. <laughs> a, a boat passing through the water. It's got this bow wake coming off it. The island is essentially like the boat and the waves like the bow wake is what the new wave pattern is going to look like as the waves stream around either side of the island. But some of the waves will actually come together at the back of the island. And then we get very confused uh, and quite mountainous uh, pyramidal waves called klaptiotic waves formed by the uh, wave energy slowing so much that it actually is directed around the back of the island and comes together. So klaptiotic waves, we've got wave trains that are adding and multiplying to each other. We've got the effects of shallow water and suddenly we can start to see that the further south, the further north that you get in the world where wind speeds are increasing, uh, you can get some pretty serious weather situations. To give you an idea, as you go further south, we get into what we call the roaring 40s. 
40 degrees south, which I live at 44 degrees north. It's not particularly roaring here. Why is it roaring when you go into the Southern Ocean? Well, because there's very little land in the Southern Ocean to break up the movement of the, of the air. So you might get something which is produced at, say, 50 degrees south, which as it goes around the bottom of the planet, there's nothing to impede it apart from Cape Horn. It just blows and blows. The, the fetch is thousands and thousands and thousands of miles in very, very deep water. And as an average, the Southern Ocean is about 200 meters deep. That's about 6,600 feet deep. And it's about 2,000 nautical miles wide. So that's what, 4,000 kilometers wide. So it's just completely unimpeded, massive area of, uh, of water. And the, the wind and the waves do whatever they want to do. When they come to the land suddenly, whether it be the bottom of Africa at Cape of Good Hope, whether it be Australia and New Zealand or the Chatham Islands or the Kerguelen Islands, all those little bits down there, suddenly there is a mountainous effect with these uh, huge seas which have been blown up by uh, the continuing and high-speed winds getting um, smashed up against the rocks of whatever the landmass is. As we go further south, we get into the furious 50s. Now we have wind speed even higher, and you can actually start to draw a bit of a, a kind of graph on this stuff the average wind speed in the Southern Ocean at 40 degrees south, taken over a, a long period of time, obviously not on a daily basis, but over a long period of time, the average wind speed in the, um, in the roaring 40s is 40 knots wind speed. And as you get down to the furious 50s, it's 50 knots. And as you get down to the screaming 60s, <laughs> you guessed it, the average wind speed over a year or more is 60 knots. Now, quite how <laughs> windy does it have to be before you get an average wind speed of 60 knots, bearing in mind that there could be some days where the wind speed's like 10. So very, very windy is the answer to that. So the area that um, Slocum is moving down into, he already knows as a professional seafarer, he's already been around the horn before, he knows what he's getting into. But the tip of South America is a... Uh, a massive obstacle for these enormous forces which are moving through the Southern Ocean. As if you look at a map of the world, a normal map of the world, it's all slewing from right to left. It's always going from right to left as it goes round and round and round. The mountains of the world and the, uh, the surface friction of the planet starts to drag the atmosphere around in it. Now, if you were to have a um, normal size, uh, school size globe of the world, and you're going to mark out the mountains of the world on it, the height of the uh, biggest mountains on the planet, Aconcagua and the um, uh, Everest, and all through the Annapurna range, the average height of those mountains displayed on a normal school globe is no thicker than the thickness of a piece of paper, just a normal piece of paper. So the friction that we're dealing with here all over the planet is a very small effect, but that effect can grab and move and drag the uh, air of the planet around. And when we add this into the heating and cooling that we experience at the poles and as the equator, we start to get the basic movements of the atmosphere. At the equator, the heat is going up, as you might imagine, taking the air particles up with it, gets into the upper atmosphere, and then it cools and drops down at about 30 degrees south and 30 degrees north. It then reheats just north of the Tropic of Cancer and the Tropic of Capricorn, which are still very warm areas, and it goes back up at the atmosphere again. 
when it's up in the atmosphere, it cools and it comes back down again at around 60 degrees north. There's then a third cycle which is acting on the polar regions and that gives another third cell of uh, air which is heating and cooling and rising and dropping uh, relative to the surface of the planet. Now those three circulating cells are uh, named, well two of them named after the people that theorized them. The first one was uh, George Hadley, that's the Hadley cell that rises above the equator and drops at 30 north. Then we have the polar cell which is air which is circulating around the 60th parallel and then in between those we have the Ferrell cell which was named after William Ferrell who, who theorized it. Um, these three cells are some of the primary drivers in the meteorological landscape of the, uh, uh, of the planet. Down south where Slocum is now heading, these cells plus the Coriolis effect plus the friction effect of the land masses moving around are exhibited in their, their strongest form. There's very little to kind of break them up. It's just the ocean, there's the polar region, there's the equator, and there's a big flat expanse. So that's how we can end up with these massive wind speeds down south because we are really starting to mess around with some very large planetary sized forces. So as he heads south, um, we read that Slocum has already started to resolve various things to himself of how he's going to handle this bit. He, f he has trepidation. He says that uh, at the last anchorage on the monotonous and muddy river, weak as it may seem, I gave way to my feelings. I resolved then that I would anchor no more north of the Strait of Magellan. We need to hear nothing else really from him. I think this is him in a late 1800s way saying, I broke down and cried and realized exactly what I'd uh, set myself up for here because I know what it is to go south of Buenos Aires. So um, I think by delving into this book myself and, and reading it and being careful about it, I'm starting to realize that we have quite an exceptional late 1800s writer. Um, the 19th century is not famed for people sharing exactly how they're feeling about things. Certainly if you read, as I've mentioned before, Ernest Shackleton's book, South, some of the most incredible adventures that they are involved in take up literally a couple of lines. He's so dismissive and so terribly British about it that he doesn't even register that these things have happened. It's a kind of like an automaton way of going through life. Slocum is still of that era, and bear in mind that Slocum would have been born, you know, he's born mid to, to, to early 19th century. He, though, seems to have this ability to uh, juxtapose the gritty kind of salty sea dog thing that's going on with an incredible turn of phrase. So he's nervous and we as readers should be nervous on his account because I guess the last meteorological thing that we need to know about here is that the planet goes through regular environmental changes. Obviously humans are having an effect on that as well, but it used to be that where I'm living now was under miles of ice. That's not so anymore. It used to be that where I'm living was uh, filled with ferns and palms and there were uh, dinosaurs here. That's not the same. So we do know that there are cycles that the world goes through. And it's also clear that the planet went through a minor ice age at the end of the 1600s, 1700s, and it was just starting to warm back up at the end of the 19th century. A lot of the figures that we have now relating to temperature, whilst we as humans are doing a, a lot of terrible things which are damaging the atmosphere, the other thing that is happening is that 
we kind of set our zero point when we were actually coming out of an ice age at the end of the 19th century. The temperatures at sea, the temperatures in the world previous to 1900 uh, were colder and things were a lot stronger at sea than they are now. So Slocum, as he goes south in this, he's going into an area which is going to be very cold. He doesn't mention temperature at all, actually, in any of this, which is kind of interesting, but he would have been wearing the kind of clothing that uh, the fishermen in this area, where Slocum is from, obviously from Nova Scotia originally, um, they'd be wearing wax cotton, they'd be wearing wool, they'd be wearing silk, they'd have sorts of um, uh, very traditional looking headgear and, and, and long max and things to try and drive off this weather. So as we listen through this part of the book, remember that it's incredibly cold down there as well. Obviously, I've sailed around Cape Horn um, and I've done it at a period of time not too far off uh, where, where Slocum uh, is going through now. I'll actually be talking about my own rounding of Cape Horn later on. But it's cold. It's nasty. It's windy. Uh, the seas are very big. It is not a good place to go. So it's not surprising that as Slocum sets off, I think he steals himself to it by saying, I'm not going to anchor anymore. I'm just going to go and do it. Um, it's just that kind of head down. Don't look. Don't look left. Don't look right. Just go to Cape Horn. <laughs> so off he goes. And the first thing he gets into is his massive wave. And uh, I'm sure that tested him as well. There's a wonderful depiction in the book. If You, um, you can see all these pictures online, of course, if you look up uh, images from the book uh, Sailing Alone Around the World. But there's a fantastic uh, drawing here of this tiny little boat and uh, a little lone figure already scaling the rigging. What Slocum says he does is he goes up the rigging. And if you watch um, old school footage of these big ships going round the horn, there's a fantastic one called Around the Horn on the Peking. If you haven't seen it, it's very much worth looking at. It's all black and white. It's shot by a guy who is just like this super intrepid, I want to be a sailor type guy. Watching him doing the training for setting off uh, on these ships is almost more impressive than what he shoots on board the ship. He like sets a timber uh, upright and learns how to climb up it like a tree trunk basically up and uh, stands on the top of it. He learns how to climb up the sides of sails just holding onto him with his hand and his toes like guys a nut job but <laughs> but a brilliant one. Um, but he uh, takes some amazing footage of the peaking going around the horn and what happens on these big ships is that as they get down into the bottom of these waves. Remember, they've got big loads on board. They're not just driving around for the fun of it. They've got coal, they've got grain, they've got all sorts on board. Um, read also, of course, The Last Great Grain Race by Eric Newby, where he goes aboard Moshaloo to do one of her last runs from Australia back to, uh, back to the North Atlantic. And um, what would happen in the waves would be so big that the ship would stick her head in and then would basically pass through the wave. And that means that the decks are completely awash and so the sailors would get very quick at going up the rigging. And Slocum, of course, we meet him in his yachting days while he's doing this stuff, but he is uh, he has come in through the horsepipe, as he said earlier on. He learned how to be a seafarer from being on the on the decks of big boats. He became the captain of the Northern Lights. He he knows what's what. So his instincts are good. And what he does is as the spray sticks her head in, he goes up the rigging. Now I wouldn't be doing that these days. <laughs> we have perhaps a little bit more waterproof cabins and certainly on the, the carbon fiber and Kevlar boats that I race on, you can go inside the boat and even as she plunges into very heavy seas and it all goes dark inside as the windows get covered over, um, the interior of the boat is the safest place to be. Perhaps not so on some of these 
bigger boats back in the day where uh, big open orifices on the deck of the boat could allow huge amounts of water into the boat. Um, and also bear in mind, a lot of these guys couldn't swim either. So they were uh, up the rigging was the, the best possible way to go. So Slocum shinnies up the rigging and manages to get through the wave uh, without too much issue. But then after that, he points out that um, after that, he has no uh, doubts anymore about the ability of the, uh, of the spray to make its way down to Cape Horn and, uh, and make it, as he says, it reassured me against rude Cape Horn. So then he sets off to the Strait of Magellan. And um, what I did for this, um, because I wanted to be able to view the area uh, as best I possibly could, I went online to uh, Navionics. And uh, if you didn't know this, Navionics is a fantastic app you can get for your phone. Don't worry, I'm not sponsored by anybody. This is not my first advert or something. It, Navionics is a fantastic app you can get for your phone, which shows you Admiralty standard charts um, on whatever electronic device can display them. You can get all of that through an account. But if you go online and just go to navionics.com, they have a chart viewer that's for free. So then you can look at charts of anywhere and, uh, and look in, in, in detail at what's going on. So what I did, as I knew I was going to be doing this, is I got the chart uh, to the tip of South America. And then I started to work out like where exactly uh, did he go in. So he goes down the coast of South America. You know, there's that kind of cut uh, of the South American tip off to the east. It kind of hooks around to the east. And then the Falkland Islands is kind of in that bay that it produces. Well, the entrance to the Strait of Magellan is uh, inside that last little curved cut uh, way to the east. It's in that last big bay, uh, the Bahia Grande. Um, and you go down just a little bit further south than um, uh, Puerto Santa Cruz. And then what's next down this uh, chart? Uh, Laguna del Mosquito. <laughs> well, I think we know why they called it that. So February 11th, the spray rounds Cape Virgins, which is the entrance point to the Strait of Magellan. And to kind of like give the overall arc of what happens in these chapters, um, just from the, the, the you know, 30,000 foot kind of look at it. Basically, he enters the Strait of, uh, of Magellan. He takes that cut to the south. And then he uh, takes the big tick that goes up to the northwest. But due to the weather that he then experiences, he ends up getting blown back, back down towards Cape Horn, and then re-enters the Strait uh, of Magellan via this uh, torturous little channel that he finds um, through what's called the Milky Way, which is, you know, if you have a, <laughs> if you have a, a feature in the ocean that's called Milky Way, then you know it's going to involve a lot of white. And the only thing that turns the ocean white uh, in a consistent form close to the land is rocks. So it's not too difficult for us to understand that uh, this area called the Milky Way is filled with rocks. And, you know, no spoilers here, but he manages to get through it and get back into the Strait of Magellan, uh, entering the, the, the passage where you've had that cut down to the south, and then it ticks back up to the north, just to that intersection between those two different parts of the route. So in the end, he has to do the second part of his uh, transit of the Strait of Magellan all over again. I think what's interesting here is that we've learned earlier on in the book when we were um, finding out what his uh, inspiration was to do this, that he was absolutely unabashed to say that he was doing this for money. He was doing it to create an effect. 
and he was um, definitely shooting high when he finally decided in Gibraltar to set off west around the world. He was going to sail solo around the world, but remember his initial plan was to go to Gibraltar and then go through the Suez Canal and make his way around the world. He's even talking about having the ship um, carted over the Isthmus of Panama because at that time the Panama Canal wasn't finished. Suddenly, He's heading off from Gibraltar, and we know that he was worried about pirates. Indeed, he was chased by pirates. Crossing the Atlantic would be no kind of a thing for him, and going down the coast of South America so far would have been no kind of a thing for him. But that recognition that he was going to go to this place which is being smashed constantly by the environmental forces that we've described earlier here, um, there's no uh, wonder in my mind, or no, there's no debate in my mind that he would have been extremely nervous to uh, to engage in what he's uh, doing here. I think it's worth also at this point just reminding ourselves that he was navigating um, using a tin clock and the sun and some very, very basic bits of equipment. You know, you go out sailing today, you get your Navionics, you've got your little chart going there on your, on your phone or on your chart plotter or whatever you've chosen to use. You just you know, you kind of basically rely 95% of the time on the fact that if the boat says it's there, then the boat says it's there. If it's on that part on the chart, it's, you know, there's no there's no light blue, there's no dark blue, there's no green. You're driving around in the white bits on the chart. Like, it's all good. He didn't have any of that. And this uh, passage that we're talking about going through here, it's not very big at any point. It's not bigger than 20 miles across at any section. You're in a little boat. Uh, you're handling it on your own. You've got no proper nav. Uh, it's obviously a lot of the time it's dark. It's extremely windy. And when these squalls come in, you can't see where you're going uh, at all. And your task, <laughs> uh, the wind might be uh, the, the wind might be somewhat slowed by the, um, the topography around him. There may be some little bays he can get into and get shelter, but it's still 56 degrees south. It's still unbelievably windy. It might not be as uh, big a waves as it as is on the outside of the horn, but it is an incredibly violent place to be taking a little boat. And just to kind of add the last little twist of the dagger, you, you're beating. It's not like you're running through this thing. So it's a huge challenge that he's taken on. And as he enters the, the, the straits, he says, the virgins take their tribute, even from the spray. Um, as he gets into the... Uh, this area, I think it's worth discussing a little bit the language that he's using. Slocum was a traveler of the world. He has been used to being in all different parts of the land. And we've seen that when he went to Gibraltar, when he went to the Azores, when he went into Buenos Aires, he is uh, very happy to interact with the locals. He's very interactive with uh, the, the cultures and the uh, traditions that he gets involved in. He doesn't seem to me to be in any way racist or xenophobic. We are talking, though, about someone who's born in the mid-19th century, and we are talking about a, a different time. So I read the book using the words that are written in it. I didn't think that it was appropriate to, to change out the words, but he is uh, pretty keen on calling the people that live in this area, the fusions, the people of Tierra del Fuego, he's pretty keen on calling them savages. I think that uh, this was an age of a lot of naivety about uh, indigenous peoples. It was an age of a lot of misunderstanding and, and kind of darkness around these uh, subject matters. And if you're being attacked by people, then you could say they are savage people. 
and that they uh, their actions towards you, which they, you know they're not uh, too uh, shy about trying to get on board the boat and all the rest of it. Um, that their actions are savage uh, from his point of view. So I think it's uh, okay to leave in those words, but I think it's uh, important that we all recognize that um, the people of Tierra del Fuego were probably a little bit, they were probably struggling and a little bit irritated by the fact that suddenly the land where they lived had become like a thoroughfare for this high technology other race that they knew nothing about. Now, what is uh, interesting is that the character that he picks out a little bit later on here, a black Pedro, is is a, a thick bearded uh, individual who is working with the uh, people of Terra del Fuego. He himself, the main kind of leader of them, is in no way uh, one of them. He's from somewhere else. So again, his description of him as Black Pedro, um, I think that's a name of it. I don't think he's trying to pull out the color of his skin. I don't think that's what's going on here. But it's it's uh, it's difficult. We live in a different world now. We have a different feeling towards these things. We have a lot more of awareness and knowledge and understanding that um, you know Europeans just turned up and basically took over the Americas from the people that already lived there who had a very extensive and and vibrant culture. Um, so I I make no apology for uh, keeping in the the words that Slocum used. But uh, I think had he done it in a different period, he would have probably chosen to use some other kind of words. So at first uh, he gets um, some, some good advice. Um, first of all, someone says to him that he should take a, a moon and a duke, which would be a Scots accent saying, uh, take a man and a dog, um, but no one wants to go with him and he doesn't want to have dogs on board. So he gets instead uh, a gift of some uh, carpet tacks. And I think this is one of the more famous parts of Slocum's book that he has these carpet tacks. Uh, they're given to him by Sam Blitch, his uh, Austrian friend. And uh, given the idea that this is the, uh, the, the secret special way of, of getting this done. I want to draw in a story here from my, my dad's uh, life. Uh, dads are always filled with all sorts of stories. Uh, they're, you know, sailor stories, fisherman stories. The wave was 100 foot high. The fish was, you know, six foot long. And dad stories, they all kind of add into the same thing, uh, particularly pre-Google, where dad would be telling you a story, like, oh, millions of people, like, really? Millions of people? Where obviously a Google search would reveal that it was actually thousands of people. But bloke down the pub tight stories were something my dad was very good at. He was a great storyteller. And he used to tell me these stories about when he would drive uh, what we call in the UK trans-international roadways, TIR, which is uh, trucks which are going off from England and going out onto the continent. And my dad used to drive a run in the, I guess it would be the 60s, where they would go from the UK over to France and then they'd drive all the way as far around as Turkey and sometimes as far around as the North Africa. So they're driving huge long distances and in trucks that would only do 30 miles an hour. And he used to tell me that he would uh, go through particular villages in and around Turkey and if you didn't kind of make tribute as you went through the village, you can end up being held up by uh, bandits on the road after the village up in the hills. And then they would strip. They wouldn't hurt the drivers, but they would strip the wheels. They'd strip all the parts out the engine. They'd take the load out the back of the truck. And then and that was it. Then you were just stuck in Turkey. So the tribute that was uh, uh, required was uh, cigarettes. So what my dad used to do is he used to get uh, rolling papers get two normal pre-rolled cigarettes and then two Swan Vesta matches and roll those up as a little kind of um, bundle 
using the Rizzler paper. So inside each little pouch that he'd made up, each one, little roll, he would have two cigarettes and two matches. And he would put hundreds of these, so he would tell me. But again, I'm listening to this in you know, the 1990s and 2000s thinking, yeah, okay, all right, sure. You probably saw this on a, on a film somewhere. The strangest thing that happened to me, I was in, well, the most wonderful thing, not strange, but wonderful. I was in um, Lanzarote about to do the Walk Transatlantic race. I think it was 2017. And uh, a gentleman was sitting at a nearby cafe and uh, admiring the boat. And uh, he saw me coming off. He struck up a conversation. I discovered he's from the very similar part of the world that uh, my dad was from and that he himself had also driven these uh, these routes uh, during the 60s and early 70s. So I asked him, like, so, you know, what's all this about going through these villages? And, so, and he said, yeah, absolutely. Now, he had a different thing that he would just go and buy box and box and box of cigarettes and throw handfuls of cigarettes out the window. So maybe my dad's method slightly predated him, but this kind of um, tribute was required. Otherwise, just getting into the back of Turkey into the late 1960s was a situation where you could be uh, exposed to having all of your stuff removed from you. So the idea of um, Slocum um, <laughs> sort of having to have some special method to get by this really tickled me because uh, my own personal experience with my dad's stories um, led me to understand that this this could be the way that um, that these problems get solved. At. And look, and he doesn't, you know, he has guns on board. Uh, he, you know... <laughs> He's probably more aware than any of us as to what the, the dangers were that uh, he was facing. And he was not doing like a nonstop round the world thing where you're far offshore. He's going in uh, to all sorts of places. At the time, taking a gun with him would solve pretty much every problem. People would know what it was and he could fire close to them and, and, and scare them off in that way. Taking guns these days out onto the ocean, well, we could have a whole podcast about that. It's a very dangerous option. Um, because it might well be that those people that you're firing at have their own weapons, but they spent three or four hours getting themselves worked up before they came uh, to your vessel and maybe in a, a very different mental state and therefore much more likely to discharge a firearm dangerously. Um, he's got guns, but he takes a choice to not use them um, and to uh, fire only warning shots and to rely instead on the power of the carpet tax, as we shall learn. So the first part for him is that he, he heads down into the, the, the largest, widest, most open part of, uh, of the uh, Strait of Magellan and um, into Fortescue Bay. This is where he first gets chased by the local people of, uh, of the area and has his first run in with uh, Black Pedro, as he's called. Um, they use this uh, Yamaskuna thing, which is basically uh, a begging term of like, what have you got? Can we trade? Um, you know, people would be trading anything and everything. There's, uh, what have you got and what do we need? They've got food. They've got things that they've crafted. Um, the people on board the ship might have, I don't know. I don't know what exactly they would want down there. Do they want tobacco? Do they want scrimshaw? Do they want alcohol? Do they want metal products, whatever that might be, knives? It, there'd be some kind of trade going back and forwards. But obviously the subtext to that is let's get close together and then on a boat as small as the spray, it instantly could be a case that they take over the boat. So Slocum does this fantastic job of uh, rigging uh, other people and changing his clothes and coming and going up and down the different um, uh, companionways and things on the boat to kind of give an idea that there's more people on board. I've actually used this myself when I've been in situations with uh, pirates going through 
uh, where was that? Like the Sea of, yeah, the, the Java Sea, Sea of Java. What's it called? The Java Sea, I think it's called. You go up through the Straits of Sunda and then you, you take that right turn past where Krakatoa exploded. Uh, you take that right turn and then at the end of that, just by um, Gosen Mampango, which is the whole story there, but uh, you take the big turn to the north and head up towards Singapore. Going through there, we had all sorts of weird motorized fishing vessels that were chasing after our um, clipper vessel going through there. And so the accepted method that we would use is that we would uh, run without lights. And then if they got too close, we put all the deck lights on and light up the entire boat. And then all of the crew all wearing their same waterproofs. Um, so they all had a very kind of rigorized kind of quasi-militarized, um, organized feel to them would just go and line up on the side deck. And obviously on a clipper boat, uh, bar a few people continuing with um, essential things like steering, uh, you could get like 18 people suddenly stood on the side of a boat. And we never, ever had any problems. We just basically would line all the people up and then it would take like one minute. Then we turn all the lights off and uh, go back. And those boats would always turn away. Uh, so a show of force can be a very, very uh, useful thing. Obviously, Slocum's not got that, so he does his own version, which is um, creates little uh, scarecrows and uh, changes his clothes and things, which is pretty cool. The uh, guys that come uh, up behind him, though, um, he, in the end, has to actually discharge his, uh, discharge his uh, rifle. And he does this uh, very close to the boat. I've been shot at before um, off the coast of Cambodia, and small arms fire, you... you First of all, what you actually detect is, um, well, it depends what they're shooting at you at, uh, shooting, <laughs> shooting at you with uh, as to how it kind of goes down. But sometimes you'll hear a little soop in the water near the boat or a thunk as it hits the boat. Um, other times you'll hear the crack of the, uh, the, the firearm first or see the muzzle flash depending on the light uh, levels and what have you. Um, it depends whether the uh, firearm that's being discharged towards you has supersonic or subsonic uh, projectiles as to whether you're going to hear it first or uh, the bullet gets to you first. So um, the small arms fire, I think I was probably fired at with like two twos or uh, or 30 calibers or something like that, pretty small. Um, and it was just a warning um, close to the boat. Uh, another story for another day, perhaps. Um, but uh, what he does is he, he discharges once, which would have been that loud crack of a rifle that I'm sure the local people would be aware of what that was, but they wouldn't necessarily know exactly where it kind of was it close to them? Did he fire in the air? How serious is that, this guy? So then he puts another one a lot closer. And indeed, uh, I think uh, the, uh, the, the guy in the, in the uh, canoe ends up, um, as uh, 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 Slocum says, ends up rub rubbing his starboard cat head, which he's referring to a part of the boat. The cat head's a part of the boat. But I imagine maybe his shoulder, if he's talking about a cat head, maybe he's talking about it in that way. But I think he clips him, which... Uh, <laughs> Is uh, I don't know if uh, Slocum was that much of a shot, but he's obviously firing pretty damn close to him if he's clipped the guy or got close or some little bit of shrapnel or uh, debris has, has hit the guy. But um, they're not to be taken lightly, these people. And uh, he points out later on that the one of the gunboats has actually been fired by the uh, natives when they took the burning brand that they keep in the bottom of the boat and they threw it in through the stern windows, I guess, when no one was looking. And suddenly those coals, that, that hot uh, source, has, uh, has started a fire inside the boat. He points out that he has no, uh, no way for them to do that, but that it was something he needs to be very cautious of. Bearing in mind, at this time, 
um, oh, another tangent for you. So do you know why uh, naval officers in the UK particularly, um, different navies around the world have different salutes, but if you're talking about the oldest salutes, then you're talking about British salutes because they've been doing it for a long time. So a, a, a military salute, um, if you're in the army, it's the long way up and uh, the long way down. So that is a big arc of your hand to come up to your forehead and then uh, arcing all the way back down. The military salute, if you're in the Navy, is very different. It's short way up, short way down. That's because you can't do that big kind of like semaphore thing with your hand when you stood inside a boat. You can't salute when the deck head is like one inch above your head. So the um, style of saluting in the Navy, in the British Navy, is that the salute comes up sharply from uh, your hand at the side of you and comes directly up to your forehead and goes straight back down. Also, you don't do the big stamping thing of your foot coming ha ha boom together like the army do because the deck of a boat is forever moving. And if you lift one foot in the air, you may fall over. So a naval officer slides his feet together so that he's stable all the way through the salute. The third detail of it is that the hand is cocked slightly in towards the person who's doing the salute. You don't expose the palm of the hand outwards like you do in an army salute. And that's because um, you're expected to have clean hands when you're kind of interacting with senior officers on the boat but the rigging of the boats would be covered in riggers tar which um, left black stains on everything everything right so their hands would be covered in black so they keep their hands slightly cocked in towards themselves to cover the state of their own hands so this rigging tar if it's going to leave bitumen marks on your hands it's very easy to understand that okay hang on you've got tar basically like live tar uh, still semi-liquid tar uh, available all over the rigging of the boat. You've then got um, canvas, which would have been uh, tanned to make it into uh, something which the wind does not just blow through, because obviously wind would just goes straight through number seven sail canvas otherwise. But it's it's got all sorts of products on it, which make the sails very easy to set light as well, because it's got products on there which are intended to repel mold and repel the water. The decks of the boat, well, they're obviously all made of wood, but there's all sorts of um, tallow and tar built into the boat. There's um, bitumen in the cracks and seams. There's his own oil lamps. There's papers on board. Everything is flammable. Now, the, if the boat's wet, no problem at all. But the interior of the boat, you try and keep it dry. And chucking a brand in there, uh, chucking a band into, chucking uh, ashes and embers up into his rigging, it would actually be extremely easy for the spray to catch light. If you were to throw a burning brand into a modern boat you could you could set a fire just as easily but it's going to be kind of melting kind of uh, thing it's going to take it quite a while to get going not so on the spray so he's uh, understandably very nervous about um uh, the boat being fired by the by the natives but he he manages to uh, to 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 get going at this point and um heads off up that big tick of the uh of the Magellan passage which heads up to the northeast and to uh, desolation island once he gets up there, he then gets into this strange kind of Mobius of just getting every time he thinks that he's um, got uh, through and is able to clear his way into the Pacific and get going, he gets pushed back and pushed back and pushed back by, by the weather. Now, we don't need to go through every twist and turn of the story, but basically gets up to Cape Pillar and uh, uh, enters the Pacific Ocean, but then starts to get driven south back down towards the horn and this is where i think um there's an opportunity here to throw in some of my personal experience of this part of the world 
Um, as anybody that's listened to this podcast for a while will know, I've sailed um, solo around the world and I've sailed around Cape Horn. So when I went round the Horn, um, I was offshore. I was in a 60 foot um, race boat going around the world. And I was on this leg sailing from Wellington to um, Punta del Este in Uruguay. Uh, I went round the Horn within sight of the uh, lighthouse at uh, Isla de Hornas. And so that light, again, if I go to Navionics online, if you're doing some planning, if you're trying to work out how things are, you can just click on the icons that you see on the screen and little crosshairs will come up with a question mark. You click on the crosshairs and then that will give you details on the, uh, the feature that you've clicked on. So how close was I to Cape Horn when I went round on my boat Spartan? I don't exactly know from the, uh, from the logbook. But um, it says uh, here on the description on the chart that uh, the light at Cabo de Hornas is a white flashing light with a period of 12 seconds and a range of seven miles. So when I went around, I saw that light and um, uh, it was pretty high in the air. So it, <laughs> it wasn't just on the surface of the, of the sea. So I must have been pretty darn close. And I actually went uh, into my old logbook uh, before I um, sat down. Like I'm actually doing some kind of organized things here to get these things ready. And uh, I read the uh, entry I made, and it says um, 25th of February, 6.45 in the morning. And the quote uh, is, uh, finally homeward bound after two years. That's all I wrote. So uh, I think in that, actually, there's a bit of, um, there's a bit of truth to be told. I had uh, sailed twice around the world inside of two years. I ended up doing 100,000 miles in slightly under two years, actually, with doing those two uh, round the world races. And passing through the Southern Ocean from the Cape of Good Hope in Africa, uh, going to New Zealand and then passing through the Southern Ocean again to Cape Horn, the feeling very much is that when you turn and, and start heading north that you are on the last leg of it. I had had a pretty good run in the Southern Ocean. I'd had some damage I'd had to deal with, but uh, there'd not been any uh, injury. There'd not been anything too catastrophic. But the weather is very serious down there. There's no other way of putting it. And for me, my rounding of Cape Horn was characterized by the fact that uh, I was caught in a, a very large weather system. So when uh, Slocum is talking about his experience at the Horn, I can fully understand it. Now, I had access to weather information, which Slocum wouldn't have. He was just taking whatever kind of hit him. I was in a slightly different situation with a different set of uh, concerns. I could see what was coming in. And uh, my experience was at that time, I had dropped behind the fleet because I had damaged my mainsail. I had ended up actually 500 miles behind the leaders and I had dragged them back into the third place guy who was only now about 100 miles ahead of me, it was Derek Hatfield. They had gone around the horn a couple of, couple of days before, a day before, whatever it was, and they'd been literally in flat water, sun shining, hats on, smoking cigars, sending pictures back to the website and, uh, and really enjoying themselves. But as anybody that goes to sea knows, um, what comes after good weather is bad weather. And the situation I was facing was that there was a big weather front that was coming in. It was a big system I could see on the grid files I was downloading, um, and it was heading directly towards me and it had a speed that was greater than I could stay in front of it. I was right on the front of it. I was doing 18 to 20 knots pretty much the whole time, but the storm itself was moving at 18 to 20 knots, and I was just managing to stay on that front edge of it. Now, we've talked a lot about the geographic and meteorological 
uh, elements which come into play at Cape Horn. But there's one other that we should bear in mind, and it makes sense for what we're talking about here with um, Slocum as well. Whilst being in a storm at Cape Horn is very bad, there is one thing worse than that, and that's being um, at Cape Horn when a storm is starting. If you're in a storm, you have mature waves which are coming from one direction. You've got a solid kind of patination to what's going on in the sea, which then means that at least there's some element of regularity to what's happening. You might be getting beaten to smithereens, but at least the, the, the blows are coming in a regular fashion and you can make some kind of plan. The problem when it's a new, new breeze and a new storm, a new situation, is that the waves are completely mixed up. On the front edge of a storm, the wave patination is uh, confused and mixed. And when you're at Cape Horn, you've got something, you've got a situation where the seabed has been 2,000 meters deep for 2,000 miles for the storm, and it's 2,000 miles wide. And suddenly you've got the Andes stretching like a giant kind of hand down into the Southern Ocean, which is now messing up this weather front. The weather front is basically going to be destroyed by these mountains. And so everything is twisting and turning and going all new directions that it, that it hasn't gone before. And the ocean is being churned by the fact that the new wind is suddenly trying to get new waves produced and they're, they're coming from all different uh, angles. The land itself creates reflected waves where the waves have gone in, hit big cliffs and then come bouncing back out. And then the islands, as we described earlier, create claptiotic waves, which then round the back of them, you think, oh, I'll hide behind this island. But that's not good enough because unless you're really tight up against the island, like dangerously tight up against the island, um, you're just caught in that patch of claptiotic waves behind it. So a new storm at Cape Horn is a very bad uh, forecast. So as I was heading in there, the wind speed was increasing and increasing. And the storm that I was uh, on the front edge of was uh, all blowing at like 40, 45 knots. And as I pummeled my way in there, I had way too much sail up, but I was just desperately trying to get uh, around the horn and into the relative shelter of the eastern side of the Andes and the eastern side of that raised elevation so that there'd be some kind of lee for me. Um, to give an idea of like how serious it was, um, I on two occasions going into the horn in the last six hours was nearly pitch poled. So pitch poling is where the boat flips end over end, the back of the boat's picked up and then thrown over the front end. This will happen when the front end decelerates very quickly. And that normally happens when you come down the uh, a wave and then you stick the nose of the boat into the next wave. And because of the flat nature of the deck, the bow is not able to cut through the, um, through the wave, through that, that mass of water very easily. And so it just stops. And then the back end with so much inertia, so much momentum and the pressure of the mainsail being pushed at the top of the main sail wherever you've got it set it will flip the boat end over end so twice I nearly did that I don't know exactly how upright the boat got because um, you know I wasn't looking at uh, anything that would tell me that but I was lying on the bench which was in front of the nav station bear in mind that the inside of the kind of race boat I'm talking about is just one big large open stripped out space there's nothing else in there and uh, there was a massive deceleration the boat stuck its nose hard, hard, hard into the next wave. We call that going down the mine. Um, she started to go down the mine. All the, 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 the cabin lights, the little uh, Lexan windows that uh, allow some light into the cabin, all went very dark, as dark as I've ever seen them before. And then I got smudged up against the 
nav station in my sleeping bag. I, I don't ever zip them up for this exact reason because you don't know what's going to happen next. But my sleeping bag blanket and I got smudged into the uh, chart table and then uh, everything I owned that was inside the boat that was not screwed down uh, all started to free fall from the back of the boat towards the, the, the front of the boat and the, and the bulkheads um, under the mast. So uh, twice that happened. Twice I thought this is it. This is the end of it. But I had quite a... Um, deep reef mainsail. I think I had two reefs in the mainsail at that point going in there, full uh, solent set, full staysail set. Um, I was charging because I had to keep the boat speed high, otherwise I was going to get caught like properly in this thing. Uh, my idea was still to try and outrun it. And uh, yeah, so the pressure as the boat, uh, back of the boat came up into the air, the pressure on the mainsail was released. There wasn't enough windage on the underside of the boat to flip it all the way over. So she basically came up to it's a sailor story, so I'm going to say perfectly upright, but probably it wasn't much more than 45 or 50 degrees. And then she slammed her ass back down into the water, and uh, the autopilot obviously <laughs> gives out a few electronic squeals as it then accelerates the boat back up to uh, 20 knots again down the, the next wave, and off we go again. I'm just left picking up the pieces of my constitution inside the boat and uh, trying to tuck my sphincter back into position. So uh, getting around the horn for me uh that was the story as we were going in and then my view of um the lighthouse at cape horn just flashing away in the darkness the, the pre-dawn darkness uh when i went round at 6 45 as i read there in my log it looked like it was going to be a disasterville it looked like it was going to be the end of the line for me and what i was trying to do and then the weirdest thing happened it literally within the period of one phone call i was just phoning off the boat to say i don't know what's going to happen i'm not sure if i'm going to survive this uh well uh, that, there you go. See, it's another sailor story. I'm not sure I'm going to survive it. I think I might break something is what I actually mean. But yeah, sure. I'm not sure if I'm going to survive this. Um, during that phone call, which was no more than five minutes, the wind speed went from uh, 35, 40 knots to 20 knots to 15 knots to 10 knots. And by the end of the phone call, I went on deck and literally put the whole mainsail up and put a, a, a light janica up and continued for the next uh, four or five hours in that situation. And what happened was that the pressure of the Andes ahead of that weather system had just slowed the weather system enough and I had enough speed to pop out the front of it. So in five minutes, it went from some of the worst conditions I've ever been in to just a very sloppy, uneven sea. And then even that very quickly as I took the turn and started to head north and the islands blocked the, the waves from my position, I was able to um, escape to the north and hence the writing uh, in my log there of finally homeward bound after two years, having passed through the eye of the needle. For Slocum, he has his own experience where he gets blown back down the coast of uh, Tierra del Fuego and back towards uh, this area which he uh, uh, tells us is called the Milky Way. I don't see that on any of the charts, but I, I think it's um, probably a very good description of, um, of what's going on there. Uh, having very little detail about it, we have to kind of um, uh, imagine. But obviously, as I look at the, <clears throat> the area on the chart here, you've got this uh, incredible set of, uh, of, of reefs out there. You can see it quite clearly if you have a look on, um, on Navionics. And uh, it is uh, a patch of rocks, which any one of which could rip the bottom out of the boat. And that's indeed what happens towards the end of the chapter, where he ends up in this uh, terribly exciting situation uh, where he basically saves the boat or the boat saves itself however you want to look at it but he manages to find a way through this um 
terrible, tight little passageway, but it's actually the breaking of one of his stasis sheets that takes him forward, and then he sees the 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 whiteness of the of the rocks uh, right below his bow. And another great piece of uh, modern uh, information which can kind of fill this out a little bit and give you there's not many good um videos or anything of like people going around or not anything i want to watch i don't want to be watching people hurting themselves but one in which i know I, one in which i know nobody got hurt is the uh the grounding of vestas in the volvo race a few years back they ended up hitting a reef on the uh, east coast of, uh, of Africa as they were heading up, I think uh, just off the coast of Mozambique. And um, it, it's important to say, yeah, nobody gets hurt, so we can watch it and not feel nervous about that. We don't need to know about how it, it happened for this one, but they are on the side of the boat. They're doing between 17 and 19 knots, and someone cries out, there's rocks here. And if you have one drop of salt water in your veins, that cry of there's rocks here and what happens next to that boat should send a shiver down your spine. You should never, ever be so relaxed about what you're doing in sailing that you'll just, you know, you're going to handle everything. Uh, when someone shouts, there's rocks here. And then you can actually, I think, see on that footage, it's nighttime and you can see the bank of rocks and it's just disasterville ensues. That feeling, that trapdoor feeling beneath you of getting super close to rocks in heavy seas. That's what Slocum is dealing with here. And uh, he finds his way through. I think the spray finds its way through. I love that uh, he has this, um, this incredible passage, which I think, you know, we've just listened to it, but I think it's worth going through again. He says, the parting of a stasal sheet in a willow war when the sea was turbulent and she was plunging into the storm brought me forward to see instantly a dark cliff ahead and breakers so close under the bows that I felt surely lost and in my thoughts cried is this the hand of fate against me after all leading me in the end to this dark spot i sprang aft again unheeding the flapping sail and threw the wheel over expecting as a sloop came down into the hollow of a wave to feel her timbers smash under me on the rocks but at the touch of her helm she swung clear of the danger and in the next moment she was in the lee of the land like my goodness me <laughs> this guy knows how to sail and he knows how to write and um yeah i think this is exactly for me why i wanted to read this book and why it was such an inspiration for me uh, for so many years which led to my own adventures at uh, at cape horn and uh, no doubt will lead to others i'm going to be heading west around the world at the end of this year on the uh, attempt to take on the solo non-stop west around the world record i won't be going inside of the islands because i must pass clear of cape horn to the south for the record that i'm going through but as i look at the chart now as i did 10 years ago when i last went around and looked at it in detail and i uh, look at the chart again in the future i will always think now of, uh, of captain slocum uh, in amongst the rocks in the darkness swinging the wheel and uh, clearing and uh, and and think to myself again for the umpteenth time, my God, <laughs> what an adventurer. This guy truly is uh, the one that started it all. And um, I'm so glad that we have the opportunity to go through the book in the way that we are and, uh, and pull the details from it. So the next part of the book is him heading out into the Pacific, a different kind of adventure, uh, one of exploration of unknown lands for him and unknown peoples. I'm going to be reading that next week. 
I hope that you enjoyed this uh, commentary and a little delve into some of my own experiences sailing in this part of the world. If you have any questions about the book or anything that you'd like to add, please feel free to email them to me at csmthemariner at gmail.com. And I look forward to speaking to you in the next one. Cheers. <laughs>